When you look at images from the war in Vietnam, you notice a lot of things. You notice young men, extremely young men in some cases, looking like warriors. You notice jungles and rice paddies and helicopters and M-16s and Jeeps. You notice nurses and USO shows and barbed wire and sandbags. But there are things in many, if not most of those images that you might not notice. You might not notice, for instance, the infrastructure of our armed forces, the roads, the observation towers, the Quonset huts. You might not notice the bridges, the helipads, the water tanks. All of these things were essential to fighting at scale in Vietnam, and more often than not, they were put there by men with tools in one hand and weapons in the other. These are the Seabees of the U.S. Navy. The name Seabees is taken from the initials CB, which stands for Construction Battalion. 10,000 Seabees were with the Marines who went across the beach at Chu Lai in May of 1965, and during the peak of the Vietnam conflict, there were 25,000 of them in 22 battalions, two regiments, two maintenance units, and scores of civic action teams. Trained for combat as well as construction, Seabees frequently found themselves in the thick of the fighting, and they often distinguished themselves with their heroism. There are 85 Seabees memorialized on the wall, including one Medal of Honor recipient. In this episode, we bring you conversations with two Seabees who served in Vietnam, including one who pioneered the underwater construction techniques still in use by Seabees today. Stick around. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict more than 50 years later. Episode 69, We Build, We Fight, right after this. Our little podcast has crossed a significant threshold in its journey of growth. It has now been listened to more than 250,000 times. To celebrate and commemorate this milestone, we created a special limited edition collectible coin. It's a bronze challenge coin with the Echoes of the Vietnam War logo in color on one side and the VVMF logo, Blind Embossed, on the other. The Echoes of the Vietnam War collectible coin is available as a thank you for your gift of $100 or more, which you can make by going to vvmf.org echoes and scrolling down to the bottom of the page where it says Support Echoes. Remember, this is a limited edition coin. We really didn't make very many of them. So get yours today before they're all gone. And thanks for helping us get from zero to 250,000 and beyond. Hello, I'm Gary Sinise. Nearly 3 million Americans served in Vietnam and more than 58,000 have their names inscribed on the wall. Those that pay the ultimate price in service to America. Some might ask why the Vietnam War still matters. It matters because more than 58,000 lives were cut short and their families forever changed. It matters because we should never forget how Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. A lesson learned so that our current generation of veterans are treated with respect. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, the organization that built the wall, works to ensure that future generations will understand the war's impact. I'm asking you to help keep the promise the wall was built on. Never forget. Visit vvmf.org to find out how you can get involved. Our first guest described the Seabees to me this way. He said, A Seabee is a soldier in a sailor's uniform with Marine Corps training doing civilians work at government wages. I was with the Navy Seabees in Vietnam the Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 11. And I was there in uh, three different tours with the battalion. That's Bruce Geibel. He retired from the Navy as a captain in 1991 after 29 years of service. He joined me by phone from his home in Canton, Georgia. 
started out with them uh, in training in uh, Fort Miami, California. And on the 26th of June, 1966, uh, uh, I departed uh, uh, Port Miami uh, for Vietnam. The battalion was already overseas in Da Nang, East Vietnam in 1966. Um, I, I, we, we came back home from that deployment uh, in October, November timeframe of that year. Um, I deployed a second tour in 1967 uh, as officer in charge of CB Team 1109, part of Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 11, and we were stationed in Ching Kham, Thailand, where I was working with a 13-man CB Team, uh, working with the uh, uh, Thai Border Patrol Police. Uh, I returned from that tour in November of that year, having deployed over there to Thailand in, in April of that year. I went uh, back to Vietnam with the battalion a third time in uh, in uh, uh, Quang Tri, Vietnam, and that was uh, from I was there from uh, uh, April to September of 1966. Uh, left Vietnam. I was offered a a um, a full uh, Navy be uh, uh, U.S. Navy rather than reserve at that time, and that began. Uh, uh, the rest of my active duty career. I retired as a captain in uh, September 1991. CBs are the Naval Construction Force. CBs is, comes from the, the initials construction battalion, CV. A guy turned that into a C like SCA, being at C and B because we're always kind of like busy as bees. So that's where the acronym CBs came from. And a CB uh, does all kind of construction. We do it for the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines, sometimes the Coast Guard. Uh, we do it uh, overseas during World War II. The CBs did work uh, for the Marines, primarily in the, in the South Pacific on islands out there. They also did work uh, with other armed forces, including the U.S. Army on D-Day um, and uh, liberation of... Uh, of uh, several of the countries over there and marching across the, the Rhine River. We set up pontoon bridges across the Rhine River there so the Army folks could take their tanks across into Germany from Luxembourg. So that's a little bit about what the CBs are. Yeah, building and fighting. Clestruimus batuimus. We build, we fight. Going back to World War II, uh, there were a bunch of civilians doing construction work all over the South Pacific at all the islands out there, you know, from Guam uh, to uh, Philippines, uh, uh, Wake, uh, those islands out there. But civilians were, were unarmed, and they didn't have any way to protect themselves. When the Japanese came ashore, they took them as prisoners of war. Many of them they executed or shot or were killed when they invaded the islands out there. And so uh, the U.S. Navy began to recognize the need for armed construction people out there uh, to continue to do work. CBs are construction personnel. They come from the Navy's Group 8 ratings, and the ratings include uh, uh, steel workers, builders, equipment operators, construction mechanics, uh, uh, construction electricians, uh, engineering aides, and uh, utilities men. So they come from all the, all the different types of building trades. Mm -hmm. And uh, that motto, we build, we fight, is represented by the, the mascot of the CBs. Can you describe that? Yeah, the CB uh, uh, mascot is uh, it's kind of built like a bee. You, you have the, the arm appendages there, one holds a hammer, uh, the other one holds a Tommy gun at the front, and they have a, a CB rate on the side that show they're part of uh, a military organization. But they, uh, the hammer basically implying we build the, the Tommy gun at the front indicating we fight. So not only do we build things, but we're there capable of defending the sites uh, that we build. Yeah. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. Um, Let's start with building. Can you give some examples of the kinds of things that CBs would have been building in Vietnam? 
CBs do uh, vertical work, which is building buildings and facilities that go in the air, and they do horizontal work, and that will be road work uh, along along the, the plane of the ground there. So uh, we do that type of thing. But the things we would build would include things like roads and bridges, uh, piers, wharves, hospitals. We would do chapels uh, for religious things. Uh, we we build barracks. Uh, the bell of the house, the military troops. We build dining halls and galleys to feed them. We build storage uh, facilities and warehouses to house the materials, the construction materials, and even the, the foods that we eat in warehouses. We do simple things like build a movie screen so you can show a movie or build an amphitheater so they can have an outdoor movie theater amphitheater there with maybe a USO show come in to do a show on the stage here. We, we can do observation towers where they can put platforms up in the air, steel or wood up maybe 20 foot in the air so that they can look out fields of fire and be able to see any oncoming enemy forces. We also build ammunition supply points where we can bury our ammunition between bunkers and, and down in holes there to protect it from getting hit. They build uh, helicopter pads. We, a lot of the work we did out there, we had to go to remote sites, and the only way to get out to some of these where the Army and the Marines were was to go out by helicopter. So we built helicopter pads and protected so they could come in, pick up supplies and, and sea beasts to take them out to these work sites to do the construction out there. We built uh, petroleum, oil, and lubrication tanks, great big tanks, 10,000 barrel tanks. We could build showers and bathroom facilities, all types of related infrastructure. And besides that, we worked with the local villagers in many, many villages, and we did civic action work for them. We could uh, help them hand dig wells. We could help them uh, uh, plow things up to be able to do, make a garden. We could help them build a dispensary to be able to take care of their, their sick and ill. And we could help them build a schoolhouse so they could train their kids. We could help them build roads out to the village so the villagers could take their wares, maybe vegetables they wanted to sell or things they made out to the local village and be able to sell it to make money to buy things there to take back to the village. So we did all kinds of things like that uh, for both the villagers and military units we supported. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, basically, anything required for victory that wasn't already there, the CBs built. Absolutely. And if things were there, maybe damaged or destroyed or built up, we would help them rebuild rebuild that those facilities and infrastructure so they could work again. Yeah. So let's talk about the fighting side. Um, I, my understanding is that you know CBs saw a lot of action, uh, but most of that probably would have been defending uh, the areas where they were trying to work if that area was under attack. Is that fair to say? That is correct. But it's all about teamwork, being able to work together, being able to do construction, have your weapons nearby so if you came under attack, you could get in a foxhole and be prepared to defend that position. It was about teamwork. It wasn't about one person doing one thing. It was about six people working together to have overwhelming uh, construction support as well as overwhelming uh, defense against uh, people who may be attacking you there. Teamwork. Bruce, when you uh, when you visit the wall, are there any particular names that you look for? One was a, a CB that worked on my CB team, Charles Jones. He uh, he was on my CB team in Thailand. Uh, he went back to join our battalion, and then uh, later on he came back with another battalion, uh, Naval Mobile Construction Battalion Five, on a, on a follow-on tour. You know. Uh, not not unlikely for CBs to go back to Vietnam many many times. He uh, he stepped on a mine, uh, was injured uh, uh, with that battalion in 19 and um, I think it was 1969. Um, he was injured, and five days later he died from his his wounds there. And uh, his name is on the wall. Is there anything that we haven't talked about uh, regarding the CBs or your experience in Vietnam that you think is important for our listeners to understand? I think one thing that 
I'd like to call everybody's attention, and anybody in the CBs now would know the name Marvin Shields. Um, he was a CB on CB team. 1104 that was deployed to Vietnam out of our battalion and of CB-11 back in 1965. And he uh, he was a hero in that battalion. Uh, he was the first and only Medal of Honor winner, he, although he got it posthumously. He won the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions there with a Navy, with a uh, an Army Green Beret uh, first lieutenant who was the, acting in charge of a Green Parade team that the, our C, the CB Team 1104 was working with, and uh, you know what they did was just just amazing. And the the lieutenant uh, with the Green Berets also won the Medal of Honor, but he got his from a president. Uh, the wife got uh, Marvin Shields posthumously there from the president of Washington D.C. back in 1966. After a short break. I'll talk with Chuck Waddell, who joined the Navy at 16, became the first enlisted man assigned to a diving billet in the Seabees, pioneered underwater construction in the Navy, and went on to write a memoir called Farm Boy Can't Swim. Stick around. The Registry is an online community created by VVMF that connects veterans of the Vietnam War era with each other. By signing up for the Registry, you can upload and share stories and images, connect with others who served during the Vietnam era, and connect your service with people you knew whose names are now on the wall. Join the community and preserve your legacy or a family member's by signing up today at vvmf.org registry. Do you have loved ones who survived the Vietnam War but died after returning home? Did you know you can honor them at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C.? We're accepting applications for the 2024 In-Memory Honor Roll through March 29. We also have an In-Memory Facebook group with more than 20,000 members, so be sure to join that if you want to feel part of a community of people who've experienced a loss similar to yours. You'll find the in-memory honor roll application and a link to the Facebook group by going to vvmf.org and clicking on in-memory. And now back to the episode. No, my mother passed away when I was 14 years old, and I uh, had a father ever around, and, and uh, uh, I had a brother that was in the Navy and, and uh, a nephew that had joined the Navy. And then uh, I decided it was time for me to go do something, so I joined the United States Navy when I was 16 years old. That's Chuck Waddell, a former CB and author of the book Farm Boy Can't Swim. He joined me via Zoom from his home in southern Utah. And uh, people ask me how I did that being 16. Uh, well, uh, you have to have your parents sign for you. And I told my Navy recruiter, um, mom's passed away and, and dad's an alcoholic. You might go up north of Spokane and find him and he signed the papers. And of course, uh, the Navy recruiter never did find my dad. He signed the papers and, and uh, I went in the Navy. I had a good Navy recruiter. At 16? At 16. So you uh, hadn't even finished high school yet? No, sir. I dropped out of and I worked on different farms for a couple of years until I turned 16. And uh, that's when I joined the Navy. And it was the best decision I ever made in my life was to join the Navy and, and, and make a career of it. And uh, when I went into the recruiter, I said, sign me up for 20 years. And he said, I can't do it. But uh, I was ready to go for 20 years. And uh, uh, it was the best, like I say, the best decision I ever made. And uh, I got to travel the world. Now, uh when you go into the Navy at 16 years old, right? Uh, physically, are you are you mature like the other boys in boot camp? Or, well, you know, I, I come from the farm community, a little town called, a little town called Spangle, Washington, of 242 people, 
and uh, we worked on the farms and ranches and, and stuff like that. So I, I feel we're more advanced than what the city boys are because we, we're out in the fields working and, and uh, milking cows and, and getting educated. And uh, so consequently, I, at the age of 16, I weighed 150 pounds. I was a pretty good-sized boy. And uh, hay and bucking bales and, and working like a man, we were pretty, pretty fit fellows at that age. Okay. Okay. So how, what year was this that you went into the Navy? I went in the Navy in, in uh, uh, June of 1960, May of 1960. May of 1960. And where'd they send you for boot camp? I went to boot camp in San Diego. And then from San Diego, I went to Fort Wayne. They were going to make a, a gunner's made out of me. And I said, no, I'm going to be a CV because that's all I ever do is construction equipment and stuff like that. And, and I'd been to trade school in Spokane for welding and everything. So uh, they finally were convinced that I'd be a better CV. So from boot camp, I went to Port Wainimi, and then I went back down to Camp Pendleton and went to uh, three weeks of Marine Corps Basic. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we went to uh, Guam for, for nine months. You said you you wanted to be a CB. So even at the age of 16, you knew what a CB was? Yes, sir, I did. Mm-hmm. I had an effort to join the CBs ahead of me, and uh, he's a year older than I am. And uh, he went in and, and ended up uh, uh, on the East Coast and, and did his uh, four years and one station, and uh, that was it. And, of course, I went in the Navy at 16, just a short time after him. And then my other nephew, which is a year younger than I am, he came in, and he was also a CB. So mm-hmm. there was there was right there together in the family. We're all CBs. Yeah. So when you say uh, construction battalion, can you can you just give a few examples of the kinds of work that CBs would do? When I was in uh, Guam, for instance, I uh, was with MCB uh, 11, that's Mobile Construction Battalion 11. And over there, we were building concrete houses there on Guam and a swimming pool and, and all. And I was first assigned to the steel yard where I was bending rebar uh, for these concrete houses that we was doing. And I was placing this, the rebar uh, in those houses all the time I was in Vietnam or in uh, Guam. Mm-hmm. So you said it was 1960, and you were there for nine months. Yes, sir. And then from there, I come back to the States. I was in the States for 30 days, and I went to Yokosuka, Japan. Uh, with the uh, When I first was there, it was Public Works, and then they transferred me to uh, ACB-1, which is uh, Amphibious Construction Battalions. And, and then, of course, they do amphibious work on, on piers and, and uh pontoons and all this stuff with the amphibs. And there I was with the steel shop building pontoons uh, and all. And uh, I was there for almost three years. Yeah. So how do you get from Japan to Vietnam and when? And in September of 66, I come back from Japan. But I did a, a, a tour in uh, uh, Port Wainimi at the military training uh, facilities. Uh, you know, tactics. And I went to NCO school in uh, Camp Pendleton, and I was the only uh, Navy personnel and 80 Marines in that class. And I was really harassed by the Marines, but I made it through, the, through it. And then I did my tour uh, at uh, uh, NCO school, and then, of course, at uh, CB Center, Port Wainimi, and military training instructor. And then in, in April of that next year, MCB-10 come back from July, and I joined MCB-10 then in, in 1966 and went through diving school uh, that year. And then I went to Vietnam, uh, to Da Nang, Vietnam. And in and, uh, uh, and Da Nang, I was uh, in charge of building strand steel buildings uh, throughout uh, the Da Nang area. And also being the diver over there with a crew of divers then, all the diving was... Uh, my responsibility. One of the interesting dives I did over there uh, in Vietnam was we had a 10,000 gallon uh, water tank up on a hill and the flapper valve went by bad. So the medical officer made me take a shower. They rubbed me down with alcohol. I jumped into the fresh water tank, handed me my diving gear. I went down and worked on the flapper valve. I come back up and, and uh, went back down to the lakes afterwards. I had 
choice everybody that I uh, urinated in water, but uh, that was always a good joke, but that was a fun dive that day. But I also did some uh, salvage work of cutting the pontoons up. Uh, the Marine Corps had uh, uh, swamped a uh, river assembly boat. I had to go out on Benoit River and, and recover that boat for them. And uh, kind of a story there. Uh, when we pulled into the camp there, I hate to say that, but uh, they veered us in a fancy way with two uh, Viet Cong heads jammed on French boats out there. And we got in there and started diving and we got the first half of the boat out and uh, it was getting late at night and raining and the rudder was rising. And I told the lieutenant, I said, uh, uh, let's cancel this until tomorrow morning. And of course that night the sergeant said, well, come on, go on, go on patrol with us tonight, Chuck. And I said, no, that foxhole is uh, my foxhole. That's where I'm staying. But they had sent an incident with me from the town, and he told the lieutenant, he said, we can't be out of the camp after 1800. You have to get a helicopter and fly us back to camp. The lieutenant told our little ensign, he said, I can't get a helicopter in here to fly my wounded out. He said, let alone fly your dumb butt out of here. So we had to spend the night out there in the woods with the, with the Marines that night. And, of course, the next day we got the rest of that boat up for him and stuff like that. But uh, I go every Sunday. I got a half a day off every Sunday. And uh, I would go over to a place called Monkey Mountain, uh, which later become a big resort area for everybody for R&R. But there was a beautiful place to dive over there. And I would dive for lobster and, and uh, I'd bring the lobster back to the cooks first. They got the first lobsters because that got me a block of ice every day. So I have ice water over there. Hmm. How long were you in Vietnam? I spent nine months over there. And uh, just out the side of Denang, at the Air Force Base on Hill 327. And I helped build the, the exchange and, and the big uh, amphitheater there. And uh, of course, I built Strand Steel buildings. And uh, a sad story here I was building a Strand Steel at Charlie Med. Uh, that was the, they were just up the road from us. And uh, that's where they brought the wounded in and, and did surgeries and stuff like that. One day I went up to, to work on the building and the stench and everything uh, is so bad because they'd bring the bodies in and, and the helicopters wouldn't even land. They'd just drop them off. And, and of course the paper registration was right there. And I had a, a second class petty officer on my crew that wanted to be a mortician. And every time I turned around, Pittman was over there working with the morticians, helping them, but burning the clothes and burning the bodies and, and seeing all of it, it it's uh, it wasn't a pleasant thing to be around. And, and like I say, one day we went up there and it was really, really, I mean, very unbearable. And I took the crew and we went back home and the company commander said, what are you doing here? And I says, we can't work up there today. And they said, oh yeah, we will. I said, we get in the Jeep, we're gonna go for a ride. And I went up there and he said, no, you guys got the day off. So, I mean, that's, that stench and everything, you'll never, you'll never get that out of your nose. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's horrible, but, uh, there was other things other than that were pretty bad over there for, that you know, get involved in. Now, you'd been in Guam, you'd been in Japan, so you're no stranger to Asia. Um, but was there anything about Vietnam that stuck with you, first impressions? First impression, we were flying in in C-135, uh, C-130s. And you fly in, and, and all of a sudden, you drop those nose and be down on the runway. And, of course, there's... A few snipers there and, and all too, but you, you land on that runway, just, I mean, bang, and you're there. And then driving up to our camp and, and all, uh, the first night I was out on the rock crusher, hard facing the jaws. And I am a perfect target because I got a blue light in my hand. And we got a sniper up on the hill that just welcomed you to Vietnam. So being a young 17, I saw he's 18 years old. 19 years old, I'll get to somewhere there. To hit there and have rounds coming at you the first night is a rude awakening. I mean, from then on, you're 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 scared. I'm not kidding you. That that first night was pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah, it must be, I mean, I'm it must be unusual for somebody 19, 20 years old to be a, a NCO, you know, with that kind of responsibility. You know, I can I can brag a little bit here. Even in boot camp, I was the assistant uh, acting CPO of the, of the company. Uh, from there, uh, uh, when I got to Guam, 
I was in charge of the, the shipfitters yard, or the shipfitters, the steel workers yard. I've always been in command duty from the time I joined boot camp. Uh, it was kind of funny. I was what they call wooden of the world. It was a group, and it was teaching marching and, and fly fishing and hunting and stuff like that. And when in boot camp, they said, anybody got any experience in marching? And I said, yes, I do. And that's how I ended up being the acting chief petty officer of the company. And like I say, I've always been in command ever since I joined the service. I'd, uh, I've been very fortunate, I guess. So being commander of the steel yard and then being uh, uh, the, in charge of the divers and uh, in charge of my own squad doing the construction work and everything else. And then when I come into uh, the diver world, I was in charge of the diver lock. So it's always been command duty. Hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, underwater construction is not such an unusual thing now. Was it unusual then for you to have the two skill sets? Yes, it was. I'm the very first first enlisted man that was assigned to a diving building in the CVs. That was assigned uh, to a what? To a diving billet. I was the first assigned to a diving billet. Now, in World War II and, and all that, there were CV divers working in, in Hawaii and stuff like where they were hard at diving and, and stuff like that. But they were never assigned as a diver uh, billet. Mm. Okay. So you're the first official diver in, in the CBs? In, in, in the CBs, which was in uh, uh, April of 1970, uh, 70, 1967, April of 1967, when I joined the NCEL. Now, when I come back from Vietnam, what, I, what happened was I always knew that there was going to be something going on under construction. So I would sneak off and, and um, go over to Naval Civil Engineering uh, Lab at Port Wainimi and got to know the civilians over there, who uh, John Cork was in, uh, in charge of the GS-14. And I would, for three months there, I would sneak off. And I kind of got in trouble a few times from, from the chief about being not where I was supposed to be. But I got to know those people. We talk about diving and, and what the responsibility was and stuff like that. I got a set of orders to ADAC Alaska diving duty. I went over to John and I said, John, I got orders. I'll be leaving in two weeks going to ADAC Alaska. And John says, no, you're not going to ADAC Alaska. You're coming here. And I said, John, I don't think you got that much pull. And he says, watch. And the phone started going and the letters started going. And uh, two weeks later, I had a set of orders to NCEL diving duty. Mm, mm. So uh, that, uh, that started my career in a really big way in the diving. Uh, I ended up going to uh, first class schools, saturation schools, salvage schools, and all, and, and running the diving locker there at, at uh, Port Wainimi. Mm. Uh, no, I'd like, I want to come back to that because I want to hear more about uh, about those schools. But uh, before we leave Vietnam, you said you were you were there for nine months. Did you spend the entire nine months in and around Da Nang? In and around Da Nang. Uh, and the Benoit River was my furthest expression out. Uh, helping the Marines get that uh, boat. But my, my time was all around Da Nang, Red Beach, uh, out at uh, Monkey Mountain, and all that area there. Mm. I built a total of five strand buildings over there. And, and interesting there is we didn't have enough concrete finishers to finish concrete and, and everything else to do these uh, uh, steel buildings. So I convinced the, the company commander to let me train my boys on setting reforms and finishing concrete and, and all. And uh, I, I had a little experience because my dad did a lot of concrete work and, and uh, all. And so consequently, they said, go ahead. So it ended up from then on, I had my own concrete finishers and, and we we our own concrete standard building and everything else ourselves. And uh, I was working on one for the third Marine Corps in, uh, it was a financial facility, had a big safe going in and stuff like that. It was kind of raining one morning, it was pouring concrete, and one of the transmitters was sliding in the ditch. And uh, I didn't want to lose that cement truck, so we only had five of them. We couldn't afford to lose another truck. So third Marines were up on the hill from us where we was working. And I went up over the hill and I went into their pool of dozers and I jumped on a P, uh, dozer with a P-25 on the back of it 
And I went up to the main gate with it. I said, hey, uh, Sergeant Peter said I could use this. We got a problem over the hill there. The guard let me out with that dozer. And I went down and hooked onto that transit mix and keep it from tipping over. And I'm dumping the concrete out of it because I wanted to save the truck. And I sent word back to the company commander, who was Norman D. Chris, that I needed him and the wrecker out there because the engine had showed up there in the Marines. It kind of convinced him that they could save that concrete. And I had to tell that engine, you make a written direct order, otherwise I'm going to dump this concrete. And I dumped the concrete. And I, when the lieutenant got there, I told him, I said, that engine said I had to save that concrete for the Marines. And I had a little spat with him. And uh, the lieutenant went over and told that engine, he said, you get out of here and don't come back. And uh, backed me up on saving that cement truck. But uh, I did a lot of, well, Grand Larceny on the outside, the comp show on the, on the inside. Uh, being in CBG, you have to learn how to calm shaw and get things done. So that was the biggest piece of equipment I ever stole. When, when your time drew short, you were getting ready to leave Vietnam. Did that change your, your, did you, do you feel like you were different in terms of your attitude or how you, how you approached the job? Well, here again, remember, uh, remember I got injured uh, on a, uh, the diving tunnel. We was doing works for the uh, air force base. My right arm was was cut pretty bad, and I couldn't use it at all. And I was uh, running around there the last uh, about two months, uh, not knowing what I was going to do or anything else. They wanted to send me to. I said no, I'm going to stay here because we had a good medical facility, and they guys down at the shop made me a sling uh, for my wrist and everything else. And I uh, I finally went into the executive officer and I said, uh, Commander Weir, I said, uh, why don't you let me take over special services? And uh, they just be something to do. I can I can pass out the equipment on Sundays or do stuff. So we went down and there was an E7 chief petty officer who had special service and he was invited to go back to the Delta Company and I took over special services. So it was a pretty easy time for me in, in Vietnam. I uh, uh, there was a lot of things I didn't like that, that went on over there, uh, stealing from us and, and stuff like that. But uh, I was different in the aspect is, is it made you grow up. Uh, you knew what war was about. You've seen, you've seen a lot of death and, and a lot of destruction. So, yeah, it changed your life. Uh, it, uh, it makes you think. Hmm. I, I, I lost too many, too many friends over there. So what is saturation school? What does that mean? Saturation is where you go down into a depth and you stay there for more than uh, uh, a period of time where you don't have decompression. You can stay there for two, three days or a week and, and you're saturated out. Uh, my longest dive was 300 feet for nine days from the time I entered the chamber until I got out when I went to school. I'm only one of four CBs at the time that had ever went through saturation school. Okay? And, 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 I was at 300 feet, and we were guinea pigs with uh, mixed gas studies. And they put a foreign gas to me, and I passed out at 300 feet. And today, it's top secret. They will never tell you what kind of gas they put on me because we were testing to see if there was other gas we could use other than helium and oxygen. And, and I, have a, I have no idea what the gas was, and, and I can never find out. Hmm. So I'm assuming that's where the name comes from. Saturation refers to the gas, blood gases. Right. right. See, when you, when you go down and stay at a depth for a number of time, like the C-Lab program, you, you crawl into what's called a PTS uh, transfer tra capsule. You're lowered down to your depth. You work. You crawl back into the capsule. They bring you up. You're locked back on the chambers, and you live in the chamber. And you stay saturated for duration, and then you start your, your, your decompression, and it depends on how deep you are, or how long it takes you to decompress and to get back up to surface. Hmm. What are some of the physical effects of, of being saturated? We're finding out now that it affects your, your body in several different ways, uh, especially joints uh, has been a bad thing. Uh, I've had both of my knees replaced now be, uh, and because of the diving. And, and I, I feel also that... Uh, uh, when I was a guinea pig with this gas, and everything else, that's probably some of the reason why I, my lungs are the way they are now. Uh, I have COPD awful bad, and I think that a lot of that gas was part of that. 
The other thing is, is hearing. You're always uh, uh, punching eardrums and, and from, uh, pressure. And so consequently, 90% of us all here end up with hearing aids before we get out of the diving because you're trying to equalize the pressure on it there. So there's, there's, there's lots of side effects that are coming up from, and we're finding out about saturation diving too, but, but we've learned how to live with it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you said uh, once you were in the Navy, you made a career out of it. How long did you stay in? I had a little over 12, almost 13 years in when I was injured on a dive uh, in San Diego and uh, was put out with 100% disability. So 13 years total in the, in the Navy? Yes, sir. Yeah. What'd you do I after would, that? I mean, you got a unique skill set, right? I mean, not too many guys can do what you do. Uh, you know, I got hundreds of stories about the diving and stuff that I've worked on uh, with, the, with the diving that I did in the Navy, uh, the Sea Lab program, all of this research and development work that I did at NCEL and incident oil construction teams and all that noise. So uh, there's, there's a lot to talk about in the diving world that uh, things that I've developed back 50 years ago, they're still used today uh, and all. Uh, I was went to all these schools and all this noise to become a master diver in the Navy. And fortunately I was in the D7 and uh, I couldn't become a master diver, but uh, I've been recommended for meritorious advancement way back when. So there's a lot of stories to talk about here before I uh, talk about what I did after the service. Okay. Uh, I, I was in NCL there until uh, I went to first class school in March of 68. I went to uh, saturation school in, in May of 69. And then in um, uh, 69, October 69, I took a crew of divers and then a lieutenant back to Davisville, Rhode Island, to set up a first underwater construction team called UTCT 1. Chuck, let me ask you a question. While you're, you know, 17 18 19 years old in the navy and you're 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 over in the pacific uh and the south china sea do you have any idea what's going on with your siblings the first five years that i was in they, they knew that i was uh, in the navy but uh, i had no contact with anybody for five years of my family i had a, a younger sister an older sister and a brother still alive and like say uh, my uh, my dad died while I was uh, in the service also. Uh, so I, I, I like to say, I, I just kind of left home because I was kind of drinking too much and, and running with the guys and, and all. And I didn't have a chance to have anything being my uh, dad being an alcoholic, mother being passed away. And, and uh, you know, there was just nothing there for me. So uh, the Navy become my family. And, 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 uh, I, I went in with the attitude uh, 20 years and, and uh, uh, I volunteered for a lot of things uh, because that was my life. Uh, uh, and I had the opportunity to see a lot. I've got uh, Japan, I've got down into Ventura, the Philippine Islands and Okinawa, Midway, Wade, Guam. I got to see a lot and, and do a lot of things. A lot of these people never get to see that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. What did you... Did you ever reconnect with your siblings? I did after uh, it was, uh, you know, but uh, I got home from Japan and I went and seen my sister uh, and all, and I went back and seen my grandparents and all. And it, was, it wasn't until, oh gosh, after I got out of the Navy before my brother and I uh, really got to do anything because I was working on a ranch and I had mo- uh, mom was in the hospital and I seen my brother drive by and he wouldn't even pick me up and, and, uh, take me up to see mom. And the, the gentleman that I was working for at the time had just bought a brand new 57, or that was a yeah, 57 for uh, Chevy pickup. And I stole that pickup one Sunday and I drove it to Spokane. Now, I'm only 14 years old. I got an agricultural permit. And 10 years later, Dutch said, Chuck, I need to talk to you about something. I said, what's that? He said, the day you stole my pickup. He knew it, but he, he knew where I went. He knew I went to see mom. Of course, that was the last time I seen my mother in law but uh, my brother and I, uh, we wouldn't speak for years until after I got out of the service. And then we finally kind of buried the hatchet a little bit. And of course, he's 86 years old now, and I'm 80 years old. So we better bury it because time is going to run out here real quick. 
Hmm. And then, of course, I got two sisters that we, we see one another once in a blue moon. They're up in Washington State, and, and I'm down here, beautiful uh, Cedar City, Utah. Well, after being out of the service for 50 years, and, and a diver, I love the water. Look, I kid you not, I love that ocean. Drop back a few years, we, as a kid, I was about 12 years old, we went salmon fishing at Westport, and I got so seasick out there, I told the captain, you call the Coast Guard, tell them I'm dying. <laughs> so I never thought I'd ever be involved in the ocean. Yeah. But after I got and, and, and become a diver, I love them, Ivan. I love that ocean. Uh, I mean, that is nothing but beauty. And and people never get to see what I got to see and do in the water. And consequently, I, I had to stay away from the divers. And I did for a number of years. And a few years ago, I thought, you know what? I need to go see what the divers are doing. So I went to Fort Wyoming and I went to the diver locker that I built. And uh, I walked in, there was nobody there. So I made myself to home. I just started walking through the diver locker and seeing what they'd changed and what they'd added and stuff like that. And at the time, I was dragging an oxygen bottle and I was in a walker. And I started to walk out and this chief walked in the front door and he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to talk to somebody that works here. He says, I'm the master diver here. And he kind of stepped back and he looked at me and he says, is your name Wardell? I said, yes, sir. He said, we've been looking for you for a long time. He said, come with me. Now, how did he, wait, why, what made him say that? What made him say, is your name Waddell? Well, because there was a lot of history. They didn't have any history about the diving. Now, we're talking, we're talking, uh, at that time, probably 40 years, okay, that they didn't have anything. And uh, uh, they had a whole bunch of pictures, and they had, nobody knew what it was all about. So I sent there for a couple of hours going through pictures and showing him something what it was. And he's writing down all the information on it and everything else. And he said, one of the questions is, you people had a pickup truck. Yeah, we did. And so I showed him a picture of it. I had it on my phone. And they, they, they just heard about it. They'd never seen it. And it was a lot of that kind of stuff that they didn't know. And uh, he said, uh, uh, we need to go over to Team 2, underwater construction Team 2 tomorrow morning. And I said, fine, we'll go over I'd like to see the equipment they got, no. So we get over there and we start walking around with the commanding officer and looking at all this equipment and all this noise and everything else. We ended up in the classroom with 42 divers sitting there. And the commanding officer says a few words and he said, and he introduced me and, and uh, I said, well, I'm not prepared for this. Uh, 45 minutes later, and then guys still sitting on the edge of their chairs, I had a lot of fun talking history to these people. And they said, Chuck, you need to write a book. And I said, I'm an old eighth grade dropout. And I says, I got my high school education after I got out of the service. I graduated from high school in 1979. And uh, I told him, I said, I don't need to write a book. The guys at the diver locker got the paperwork that recommended me for the meritorious advancement to chief petty officer. And they took that and they run to Washington and they got it all approved and was signed by the senior chief petty officer of the United States Navy. And in Fort Wayne, California, they had me come back and I did a week's initiation because the Navy is still initiates their chief petty officers, the sailors. So I went through a week's initiation and then we had the ceremony on, on the parade ground and it cost me $1,000 for my dress uniform and my khaki uniform. And when they piped me across there from my wife pinning me and, and my hat put on me and all this noise, about 500 people just erupted. And it was one of the happiest days of my life was getting that put on me. Chuck describes Southern Utah as a veteran-friendly community. There you can find monuments, memorials, and exhibits honoring those who served in every war from World War I to Operation Iraqi Freedom. In 2017, Washington City, Utah hosted the Wall That Heals, and now a group of veterans is working to build a permanent replica of the wall in the area. It's going to take a lot of work to get that done, including fundraising. But the CB's motto is can do, will do. And Chuck is among those driving the effort. We're on Interstate 15, which is uh, goes north and south from border to border. So you got hundreds of people now who will have the opportunity to see the wall. They can't afford to go to Washington to see it. But by traveling Interstate 15, they'll be able to stop and see this wall. And I, I, it's... Uh, 
I still feel the hurt uh, from Vietnam being called a baby killer and my house being stole from me when I was in Vietnam. When I was in Vietnam in July, the real estate company that I bought my house from in, in Oxnard, California, they used a quick claim deed and, and signed it and, and, and stole my house. And I come home from Vietnam on emergency leave. I lost my house. I lost all my equity. I never got my house back because I couldn't even get a lawyer. I how were they able? How were they able to do that? When when I bought my house, I signed a quick claim deed blank and didn't know it. And they used it in July. What what really hung them was I was in Vietnam in July when they signed that. They took that signed document and filed it and took my house away from me. But I come home to, to get it back, and I I couldn't get a lawyer to help me. And consequently, I lost that house. I lost all the equity. They moved my wife out of there, and she moved into an apartment house. Your wife was living in the house at the time? My wife was living in the house. They forced her out of the house, and she moved into a, a rented apartment. And I couldn't get anybody to help me. That's how bad it was back in them days. You can't realize. You couldn't get anyone to help you. You couldn't get a lawyer to help you, you believe, because of your service in Vietnam? Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, exactly right. You couldn't get anybody to, to help you. I went back to Vietnam. Uh, I was there for seven days. I went back to Vietnam and lost my house. Okay. And then, and, 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 and that was, that was one of the things that really hurt me more about the Vietnam is you got spit on when you come in, you got tormented and, and uh, you lost your house and, and nobody helps you. So I, I have a lot of hurt, but I, I, I want the veterans to be honored. And the only way you can honor these people is get that wall built here Our thanks to Bruce Geibel and Chuck Waddell for sharing their stories with us. You can find Chuck's book, Farm Boy Can't Swim, at Amazon. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a song. Here's Judy Garland from May 1944, performing Can Do, Will Do, Song of the Seabees. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of service, sacrifice, and healing. See you then. Sammy's kin, so we all joined up.